so thrilled today to have Mary Childs on the podcast. In uh, in addition to co-hosting NPR's Planet Money, I, I guess in her copious free time, she recently published a really amazing, wonderful book, The Bond King, sort of a, a Shakespearean tragedy of sorts centered around PIMCO's Bill Gross. I'm supposed to be at least somewhat informed about the bond market, at least my little sovereign debt corner of it. But I wound up learning so much and was so entertained by the Bond King that we were super thrilled when we were able to persuade Mary to join us. So Mary, thank you so much for for coming on to talk about the book. We're, We're really looking forward to the conversation. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for the kind words. It really means a lot. I want to start with sort of a a general background question that I know you get asked a lot, but I'm going to ask it anyway, just to kind of lead us in. Um, And then I'm going to append the second question to it, because Me Too likes to talk more than I'm comfortable with sometimes on these podcasts. So I want to get my questions in first. So so the the generic, generic background question is kind of what what attracted you to the project? What was the hook that brought you into it? But the the subtext for it, and this is my second question, is that my vague sense of PIMCO's role in the sovereign debt markets, or or maybe I should say not its role, but it's like mystique in the mm-hmm. sovereign debt markets, is that the story is sort of like you have distressed investors over in the corner there, and, and they're the guys who read the contracts and are actually really clever and granular. But nobody outside of that distressed debt corner actually knows anything of kind of granular detail or anything of substance. They don't read the contracts. They're just sheep following along, except the, the mythos is, except for PIMCO. They're the smartest guys in the room. They're the the uh, investors who are reading the contracts. They're special, and I, I I've never really seen a lot of proof of that. But that's the the kind of myth I hear over and over again. And so my my follow on question is: Is Pimco important? Are they special more broadly in bond markets? Like, do you think of them as unique in in any way? And if so, why? Oh, I love that. Um, I'm glad you got that question in. Um, so to answer in order, the hook uh, for me getting into this book to, for for writing this book was basically accident. I showed up on the beat that that kind of encompassed Pimco um, at Bloomberg News in 2014. And I had covered credit markets for years before, really love that kind of granularity that you're talking about, um, enjoyed the cleverness, found it very delightful, and encountered PIMCO a lot of times as one you know would, covering credit markets and credit default swaps in particular and stuff like that. So I knew of them, but I was kind of surprised to look around the you know, intellectual landscape and not see this book already exist, Um, you know, with like a force like Greg Zuckerman and other amazing financial journalists that we have in the world. I was like, where is everybody on this? This seems this seems confusing that this book doesn't already exist. Um, And and maybe it should. And I kind of put that thought to rest and then covered the company thinking that, you know, Muhammad Alarian had left and this was the the more kind of calm after the storm. Um, And of course, it was actually ramping into the bigger storm in September, which I didn't yet no one would would come to very much appreciate and then it would come to dominate my life for seven years. But it was it it more or less fell into my lap, but also with kind of um 
you know, a, a real delight in credit and in that granularity and an appreciation for it, which I think did help me get to know some of the people better and help me speak the language and help kind of expedite relationships and conversations in that way and equip me to write about things like the contracts that they got super into and um, the ways in which they were able to exploit, you know, market irregularities and all that. Um, which to your second question, I do think you know, I think it's hit or miss. Um, I think not everyone at PIMCO reads all the contracts. I think not everyone at PIMCO is, you know, the smartest person in the room, et cetera. Um, but they do seem to have a bunch of monsters in that way. And, and I think that historically, especially they did. And, um, you know, as it's institutionalized and gotten bigger and gotten a lot less like founder led and um, and, you know, it was a, a really weird place. And I think it's gotten more normal and you kind of dilute that um, that intensity in that process for sure. But, you know, the thing that I think you you hit on, too, is like you didn't see a lot of proof of this cleverness and this granularity and this reading the contracts closer than everybody else. Because I think they didn't need to necessarily prove it. Like there was this trade in the early 1980s that, as I understand it, you know, established their reputation very hardcore across Wall Street as, you know, they they kind of dominated this one trade that nobody else was doing, that nobody else saw so hard that, you know, it caused bankruptcies. It caused literally the, the traders in Chicago were waving white handkerchiefs on the trade floor. You know, it was this enormous kind of seismic event where everyone was like, whoa, what just happened? PIMCO is scary smart. So that reputation, I think, helps pave the way. And that's enduring, right? That's very durable once you get that degree of notoriety. Um, and I think you don't have to prove it that much once you've got it, but they do, you know, every so often they do have you know, there's an example in the book of Cheng Hongzhu was this amazing trader, um, and and he kind of did a parallel esque trade to that 1980 trade in uh, the early aughts, and that was also one where it was formidable, and people were like, "Whoa! Like, not only do you have the gall to do this, but you also have the like mandate leeway and the legal leeway and all these things that required the ability to maneuver like that." So. They do um, thrive on those technicalities and those uh, careful mechanics and contracts, which is what makes it such a fun book. You know, for me, it made it fun to research and, and discover and peel the layers back. That's the stuff that I think is super fun. Um, and and I think you only need a couple of those, you know, every every once in a while for that reputation to to really precede you. So, Mary, I'm going to step in and try to ask my seven questions to Good. completely take over the Bye, podcast. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Since Mark and I have been so excited about the prospect of getting to talk to you that we, we actually had to negotiate who would get how much airtime and in true I lost him yeah in true <laughs> pimco tradition uh, we're going to try, try to rewrite the rules at at every stage that might be Perfect. one of the lessons we I love learn. it yeah it's in black and white but it's also negotiable let's go <laughs> so we use your book already in class and uh, yeah, it, this is very nice because I have struggled over the years to explain to my students in my international debt class the role of the different players. And Mark and I are quite familiar with 
the distressed debt hedge funds, mm -hmm. particularly the ones like Elliott Associates and Aurelius and Absolutely. Third Point, you know, they they are they they have lots of super smart lawyers. They hire outside counsel. They read the contracts. They litigate to the death. They don't mm -hmm. give any quarter. Whereas Pimco with its parent uh, Allianz and its sort of insurance company sort of origins, it, it's both a old school real money investor, but also has this, oh, we're, we're really smart. We're kind of like a little hedge fund, mm -hmm. but, but not really a distressed debt investor because I rarely see them at the at the final stage, or the, although maybe they're there secretly. <laughs> and so when I was talking up the book to my students, and we had had, in fact, a guest come to our class from PIMCO. So this was preparation for that guest. So we would ask the guest tough questions, which I have to say the guest did not answer any of the tough questions in true yeah. PIMCO style. Like we uh -huh. asked questions and they had like a completely their own narrative that they had prepared that like sidestepped mm -hmm. all the questions. I love but it. <laughs> if, if you had to boil down the core story in this book to folks like my students who are trying to not just read a fun book, which your book it definitely is, but also learn about the market that they're gonna go work in. Is is there like what what's the elevator pitch of what what we should learn from it uh, as 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 people trying to go into the market as as lawyers or maybe bankers, but you know our students will go in as lawyers. And Pimco is such a big player in this market. Absolutely, that's such a good question, and I'm so accustomed to answering it from the investor perspective that um, I, I feel like my answer needs further consideration. But I mean, I hope that one thing that comes through from this book is that this stuff is fun, um, and the stakes are so high, like. Not only do you have like the, the the cleverness and the shenanigans and the ways in which reading those contracts can equip you, like those are tiny weapons, right? And you can you can make enormous things happen with those tiny weapons. And I think a lot about you know I read this book American Bonds by a sociologist earlier this year, and it it described credit markets as a sort of manifestation of our of our morals and our values and our like what we as a society deign to include or exclude that anytime you have a a pool of creditors or mortgage backed securities or any of these things that these are how we've delineated who matters and how they matter and who we're going to give audience to and who not and you know i think that's relevant in the in the sovereign debt world and in the distressed world you know, if you think about the Argentinian uh bankruptcy that Muhammad Alarian famously traded so well there's something really messed up there because the way he traded it, which worked out great for PIMCO's clients, was by basically quietly and slowly selling off their holdings of Argentine bonds to Argentinians, to pensioners. So that means that there's a pensioner who bought it from PIMCO thinking, you know, and there was some, you know, nationalism involved and there was some, you know, there's a lot of, of kind of complex social factors as well at play here. But that means that they ended up with, you know, a, a, a bankrupt security, you know, a security that that was functionally worthless. And that's so sad. Like there's there are trade-offs to these decisions. And the glory that accrues to PIMCO, you know, is often at the expense of someone else. And so, 
Mary, yeah. can can I just so that this is I'm so glad you brought up uh, that particular set of El Arian uh, trades, and it gets to one of my puzzles uh, in the story more generally, which is now that the sale of the Argentine bonds before Argentina craters. Mm-hmm. It, and that was, you know, the biggest uh, default. Uh, I think it's the biggest sovereign default we had ever seen until then. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to people at the IMF, like Ann Kruger, uh, she would tell us, "Look, look, the the warning signs were all there. You know, we just were hoping for the best, but yeah, they were there." And um, Mohammed is super smart guy. He he made a good bet. Yeah, he, he made, absolutely. but it could have completely gone wrong. But the, the Pimco story seems more than that. So that's not a story about reading the contracts carefully. That's really, a, that's much more a story of just understanding True. the economy better. Well, and, and acting and knowing to act in, in a moment when everyone else might have seen the same signs, right? And, it, you know, held on to hope, which is not going to, pay off necessarily. You know what I mean? So I think there is a maybe more again for investors. Sorry, it's really hard to collapse that framing. Um, yeah, but the stakes, you know, I think the the lawyer lesson in that for for me is that the consequences are enormous. Even if you think that you're playing a fun game, which you are, you know, the the outcomes are very real and do leave the little island of finance and of investing and of distressed debt, right? Yes, very, very much so. And then so another one of the stories that you tell beautifully is and I, I, I'm guessing this is before um, Elarion joins Pimco or maybe it's in his earlier stage is the story of what happens in the tequila crisis, 1994, 95. This was this was my very first uh entry into the market as a baby lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I, I worked for a law firm where like it seemed like an overwhelming amount of their business was with the Mexican government and with uh, Mexico-based firms. And as Mexico craters, I'm thinking, okay, I just got my first job. Everybody <laughs> in my family is dependent on me. And it looks like this firm's going to go out of business. Oh, and gosh. so it was so, so desperate. And then the U.S. provides the bailout and everything's back to normal. And again, that time they don't sell, presumably, mm-hmm. and they're on the right side of the transaction. But I'm wondering, again, was there edge that Bill Gross and his team just understood the incentives of people at Treasury better, though the incentives of Bill Clinton and mm-hmm. his team, like Larry Summers and Bob Rubin. Yeah. yeah. Or, or was it just that they were making a bet? Like, were they in the room uh, talking to these people and then they would come home and they'd be like, I know what Bill is going to do? Or, or were they just like, making the calculation that they cannot let Mexico crater. Because even now, when I go back and read the news reports, there was a lot of uh, Republican and maybe even Democrat pressure that we shouldn't bail out Mexico, we shouldn't bail out Wall Street. 
and 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 there was a political price to pay for giving Mexico the money, even though in hindsight it, it was seems like it was a good decision. What what was Pimco's edge again there? So I think in that case, their edge was a confidence game, as you kind of mentioned. You know, it's it is to some extent you can play chicken with the international financing community and governments around the world and say, I think they're going to have to do this. Like, I think for geopolitical reasons, for security reasons, for, you know, stability reasons, there this is going to be necessary. Um, and, and therefore we can get there first. And that's absolutely, that's something that PIMCO w- will repeat um, and, and to its great benefit in the financial crisis of 2008. I think it's also that at a certain point, you know, if you know your own size and scale and you know what you're capable of, there's a way that PIMCO just could, it could be self-fulfilling. So if you look at the kind of coverage at the time, the the reports are there were failed treasury, there were failed auctions for Mexican debt. And that's so scary. You know, they, they could not get people to buy their debt. And the kind of panic was rising, right? So auction after auction was failing and they were just, people were freaking out about it. And with no one stepping in to come to the aid and, and, you know, buy these securities or offer a loan or somehow inject liquidity into the country, the, you know, things are getting worse. And this starts like a confidence spiral and, and it can really get um, get nasty. And what PIMCO identified was that there was some extremely short-term debt that, you know, with short-term debt, you can see pretty clearly, you know, in the, in the next couple of months. And if you're big enough to sweep an entire auction to take down all of the debt that's just going to naturally restore confidence. So at a certain size and scale, you have the ability to tip the scales yourself and to be as influential at times as a government. And I think you see this time and again in PIMCO's history and in a lot of you know asset managers as well, that they have this, this understanding of their own place in the market and that they do sit at this inflection point. They can kind of make it go one way or the other. And in this case, they stepped in and there were kind of whispers that they were the government, right? There were whispers that this was Treasury, this was IMF, this was somebody had come in and bought the entire auction and things are fine and everything's okay. And all anybody needed was to feel okay for these securities to perform well. So it's <laughs> it becomes self-fulfilling. And I think when you are aware of your own abilities in that way, yeah, you can just make it make it happen. It becomes self-fulfilling in kind of a, in a way that's almost problematic, I think is is part of what you're alluding to, or I don't think I'm reading too much into that. And no, that was no, part yeah. of the sense, that's part of the sense I got from the book. You have this, this entity that on the one hand is genuinely digging up and then capitalizing on useful information. You talk about, you sort of begin the book with the, the story of PIMCO reps going around, not in any particularly sort of sophisticated way, but on the ground examining the state of the housing market, right, mm-hmm. to, to influence bets on, on mortgage-backed securities. And, you know, so that's it's sort of a nice story in a way about you know, arbitrage and maybe the market moving towards efficiency if there's some hmm. advantage to be gained from doing this. But then on the other hand, I don't know. The The outcome of that is that the federal government's guarantee, which has sort of been an implicit guarantee of the housing market, gets made yeah. explicit. And we've kind of moved in the direction of even a wider range of U.S. government guarantees of all kinds of obligations. And I kind of feel like 
that's a crappy world and that maybe PIMCO has played an important causal role in bringing it into existence. Is that, am I wrong to think about PIMCO as having some... Sorry, go ahead. No, I think you're exactly right. I mean, this is kind of a central premise of the book, I think, where, and you know, book authors always get a little, you know, too far into their own narratives and and like eat their own cooking too much. Right. And so I got worried writing this book being like, oh, God, have I have I done that thing where I'm like making the case too hard that Pimco's at the center of this and that Pimco has pushed this and Pimco was the inflection point or the kind of catalyst for that, making that implicit promise explicit. And I think I didn't overdo it. Like, I think that it's actually very real and it was covered in all the chaos of the time. I think that, you know, the financial crisis, everything was happening all at once every day. And it was hard to discern what was causing what. And, you know, we've had time now to kind of evaluate and see what happened. And I was talking to a friend who was really in the thick of it, um, very, you know, through the crisis. And and he was saying that he just finished the book and I had solved a mystery for him because he didn't understand the timing of Fannie Freddie and the, the government kind of making that promise explicit. And and I was like, oh, I solved the mystery for you. Like how? And he's like, well, that the Bill did it, that Bill Gross and Pimco like forced this. And I was like, oh, good. Like <laughs> you like, that's great. Like this is this is proof to me, this person that I really respect and and who knows this stuff uh, really well, telling me that, you know, yes, you didn't you didn't go too far in the book writer thing of of, you know, getting too kind of evangelical and and um, uh, convinced of my own thesis. So so I'm uh, I think that, you know, they I think you're right They're They have this ability, they and others, you know, I think if there are other investment management firms that could do this, but I, I mean, I'm kind of hard pressed to think of the ones at, at the top of my head that could like mess with governments in exactly this way. But yeah, there's been this kind of guaranteeing and backstopping and promising that everything's going to be okay in what we still call, you know, free and, and capitalist markets. And it's like really silly. It's just, I, I, I find it, um, it's made it hard for me to take seriously some of the claims that I hear from these investment managers who are like, oh, well, we're, we're you know, risk takers and we're going to go and find the heart. You know, I, I don't know. There's something it undermines the fundamental promise and kind of like what what's the risk if somebody's just going to step in. And, you know, that's changed a bit since this book came out. The the paradigm of, you know, the Fed's promise and, and we're going to step in anytime the market crashes <laughs> seems to have abated, seems to have been at least mitigated. Right. Um, so that's more interesting. But I do I do think you're right that we've made these compromises. We made a bunch really fast in the crisis, the financial crisis of 2008 and 9. And not that they weren't examined at the time, but we didn't really have the space and clarity and literal time to just think about what we were doing and say, okay, this is quite right. And everybody didn't get to weigh in. And, you know, are these really the things that we want? Do we really want there to be an investment manager who can say, hey, government, Go ahead and do this. Please, please do this thing that will be super beneficial for me, for us, for our clients. And, you know, it it just needs to happen. And then it and then it happens. Like that seems that seems at least problematic. Yeah. I want to ask a question that maybe you can't answer, but I'm I'm hoping you'll lower Exciting. your guard and okay. answer the question. <laughs> so my sense of the dynamics between PIMCO and the U.S. government or PIMCO and other governments, perhaps, is that they are so damn big that they can determine the success or failure 
of bond issuances. And Mark and I have worked enough on government debt to know that this the failure of a bond issuance, like you talked about with Mexico and those auctions, is terrifying to a finance ministry, say, uh, I imagine the Italian uh, treasury is, is terrified uh, every week when it goes to the market these days. And we know that, the, I mean, the bond markets took down Liz Truss in, in like in a matter of days. So given that the bond market and Bill Gross or, or Slash Pimco has this enormous power to determine uh, the success of these issuances. They're, they're doing stuff that is making or breaking the careers of treasury officials around the world on a regular basis. A and that means that they must have the power to make a phone call saying, you know, we'd really like this. We think this is good for the world. Maybe you should do it. And I don't remember your book giving us the details of, oh, you know, they had a meeting with Tim Geithner. Uh, mm -hmm. They flew up to D.C. or there was a phone call uh, that 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 did this. And I, I in my head, I'm thinking, you know, she probably needs like, you know, seven sources for each of these to be able to tell them, but surely right. she heard the stories. And so I, I'm just, I'm gonna give you one example that I've heard about, and maybe I've even written this story uh, because I don't need uh, seven sources like you do, <laughs> but this has to do with something that the treasury department desperately wanted in 2003, which was collective action clauses after the Argentine debacle, the world, sort of the IMF and the global uh, sovereign debt community decided we need a mechanism in uh, sovereign debt contracts to enable more orderly restructuring so we don't mm -hmm. have the disaster of Argentina. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem was that no, none of the countries issuing debt had any interest in these provisions because they're like the bond market will revolt and the prices will crater. And so we don't want this crap. And the US Treasury wanted it because they were like, this, this is going to save the world. And so we need to get it in. And the story is that PIMCO bought the entire issue and ensured that the price of the Mexican bond with the collective action clauses was such that it suggested to the market that investors actually preferred bonds with this collective action clause. And, and it, it did. And Treasury officials were crowing for years that like they had changed the world when really PIMCO had manipulated this. And I'm thinking, you know, if PIMCO can make my career and I'm a treasury official, I'll do whatever the hell PIMCO wants. And so I just like, I kept thinking, and you know, that story is not in there. So maybe it's not a true story. It's just just one of those rumors, like the, the rumor of your uh, showing up in the Girl Scout. Uh, right. You know, that one's not true for clarity. Yes. <laughs> well, I but, have to say, just because it doesn't show up in the book doesn't mean it didn't happen. There are many, many things that were, you know, cutting room floor. It was brutal. You think a book, you have time to say all that you want to say, and you simply do not. So 
you know, that one, um, that one, I, I love that story. I actually didn't know that one and I'm going to now have to go find out and maybe do a show on it. <laughs> but I'm actually delighted because I feel like I didn't know that there were more delightful, you know, big PIMCO stories for me to learn. So thank you. But you're right. Like the thing that you're hitting on here is, is absolutely true where, First of all, there's the obvious revolving door, right? That they hire, you know, Bernanke and Greenspan and they hire, you know, Rich Clarida. So there is, there's a lot of kind of back and forth and and this kind of people get very exercised about the promise of a lucrative career on Wall Street on invest, in investment management after some kind of public service. And, and that's life. And I don't know what we're going to do about that. But um, PIMCO is definitely in the in the group that does that. Um, but I think you're exactly right, especially in emerging market development, like all of that world, there's so much ability for PIMCO to influence things to either, you know, create a situation where they, you know, appear, make, make things appear one way just by virtue of their actions and they don't have to say anything. Or, you know, there's this really great article from Bloomberg and I think 04 um, about Muhammad Alarian's work um, talking about the ways in which they basically uh, influence, um, and you could say bully if you wanted to, different, you know, finance ministers and treasury officials and da-da-da. And the thing is, like, you know, they would, if they think that you're, you know, if PIMCO is in the, it feels as though you're not, you know, prioritizing them, they will put you in the penalty box. And this means they will, you know, not interact with you or they will kind of ice you or not buy your bond issue, yada, yada. And like, to, obviously you need them. You know, they're an anchor buyer for a lot of new debt issuance and people care what they do. So if you're trying to get people on board, you need PIMCO. And there's this example in this fantastic article that, you know, the Ukrainian finance minister had, you know, come to see them last and and PIMCO was mad about that. And then like... Like last, like, okay. So in some sense, you can see the argument for this being very important to um, to the clients of PIMCO, to the, you know, people that invest in their funds that, okay, I want the extra like two basis points that I would get from being the first meeting or the edge of the information that I'm going to get from talking to these, you know, finance ministers and whatever else. The All of this stuff um, that, that feeds into a slightly better return, which again, in the bond market, when you talk about a couple of basis points, it does that up. It matters. But it's it's this behavior that this this ability to wield this enormous influence over literal countries that just is a little staggering. And it's again, it's like, did we mean to make this the structure that we have? Did we intend for this that like PIMCO runs the world? Is that what we <laughs> that what we wanted? But yeah, like I remember when Bill Gross, Bill Gross left PIMCO, the uh everyone was really worried that the government of Brazil wouldn't be able to fund itself and like Brazil would collapse. Like, yeah, that might've been a kind of a, an overstatement and a little bit of a, a bond market paranoia, but at the same time, I don't know, that seems, that seems bad. Um, and of course lawmakers will be like, Oh, you know, I talked to some, some people who, you know, were, were intimately involved in the Fannie Freddie stuff and in government at the time. And they were like, Oh, well, you know, PIMCO was there, but they weren't all of it. And I think, you know, you can get different variations of of how influential and important and crucial, what, like whatever, you can get different reads of that. But um, of course, they're going to say that. Of course, they're going to say, oh, no, we act freely and we don't have any, um, we're not beholden to them. But, you know, watch watch the body. Don't listen to the women. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, the, I, this question of what, what, 
influence they have and what role they play is really interesting to me. And I, I want to ask a question which you can just, you can sort of dismiss since it's taking a slightly off topic, but I've been listening to some of the ESG shows that uh-huh. you and your colleagues have been doing on, on Planet Money. And uh-huh. me too and I have, have been thinking about green bonds a fair bit in particular. And I I think it's fair to say we're both pretty cynical about them. Fair. Maybe this question is not, is not, and maybe you don't want to do anything with this question, but I, I, I wonder whether PIMCO and other major investors, but especially PIMCO, have a role in structuring that market. Like my sense of the market now is that all of the ESG promises are just basically bullshit. Um, mm-hmm. And that the market is sort of content with that. And <laughs> but when I talk to folks, including folks that I mean they won't say they're content with that, but but you know, That's less, revealed yeah. preferences, not exactly you know, not stated references. But you know, certainly the stated preferences of even the folks at, at PIMCO I've talked to are quite like they purport to be quite earnest. Um and and uh, you know care about green finance and, and its mm. potential. And I'm wondering if you if you think PIMCO has any role in climate finance more broadly, um, ideally moving, basically the the story you tell doesn't give me any confidence that whatever influence PIMCO has will be used to move it in a good direction as <laughs> opposed to, to simply an advantageous direction. But but I don't, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I think that's right. No, I mean, you can't expect them to do anything that's not their expressly stated mandate. Right. And their expressly stated mandate is to to profit. So to find ways to help their investors, their clients, uh, you know, make more money than they did the day before. And that's what they're going to do. And that's what they're going to index for. And if there's a way to do that in a way that helps the world, like that would be nice. But that's not that's not on the list of priorities, really. You know, like that if it's on, it's lower and it's in a specific fund and that's going to just fall to the wayside. And I think that you know, the criticisms of ESG are all right or correct there. It's it's not going to save the world. It's it's inadequate. It may make us feel, you know, that we're helping when we're not and give us a false sense of security. But I'm a little bit upset that people would get a false sense of security just by shifting their dollars like a little bit like you really think that's adequate. Um, so but that's my personal bias. Um, but I think like, yes, the structures are are it's tough because it's a it's like, yeah, this is the thing we have. This is what we built. It's not great, but it's what we have. Like, what do, what do, you, what should we do? Or should we not do anything? That doesn't seem, you know, giving up entirely seems also bad. Not trying to to push in a in a given direction. Like, I don't want to suggest that there aren't scams and dumb things within ESG that are not heartfelt and going to actually help. There absolutely are those things, but I also you know, if the alternative is just doing regular finance, (laughs) I don't think that's better. So, (laughs) right? No, 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 that's right. I just, I'm I'm like, you know, you guys can make a, you guys can make a profit in a market where nobody's really promising to do anything ESG related. They just have like a green sticker on the bonds and, and maybe they get like two basis points for that. Or you could make a profit in a world where there are real commitments. Um, It'd be nice to, I would love real commitments. Yes. Real commitments are better than fake ones. I think we can, a lot of us can agree. (laughs) You and I can agree on that. Yes. I think that would be better. And 
the ways to enforce those mechanisms, we have, I guess we have to come up with those, right? Like that maybe is the next step. We we all are kind of dissatisfied or, or a lot of people are dissatisfied with the current state of things and the stickers and we want to do better. And that that's what will help us do better. Hopefully. So Mary, we're, uh, we are unfortunately quickly getting uh -oh. uh, to the <laughs> end of our time. And I have so many more questions, uh, but I want to come back to a big picture question mm -hmm. about the book and the story in the book, because we we really love this book, and I plan to <laughs> selfishly I plan to use it again uh, for my students. Oh, so and bad. so when when I'm trying to think of like how did Pimco and Bill Gross change? the bond market, one mm. of the points that I saw you making very early in the book and multiple times in the early part of the book was that this was a sleepy buy and hold world mm -hmm. where insurance companies would buy safe bonds and government securities, which is a lot of what PIMCO deals in, uh, as I understand it, mm -hmm. uh, that they are, you know, you can easily ma match the insurers' uh, assets and liabilities, and you just buy and hold, and uh, and you're, there's lots of regulations on, you know, what, what you're allowed to hold as an insurance company. And then somehow they figure out that we shouldn't just buy and hold in the primary market, we could trade mm -hmm. or we could negotiate for better deals. And this creates, in some sense, a bond market. Now, I, I, I want if if I'm correct in that articulation yes. of what the story is, then I, I'm hoping you can give us a little more color because you know bond markets have existed for time immemorial. People uh, were trading these things uh, at least for 500 years. <laughs> uh, so when when you say that they they created a market, is it that the, the volume of trading dramatically uh, changes and mm -hmm. the way in which they do the trading. They, so what, one of the stories you you tell, as I understand it, is that th they bargained harder for basis points. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm like I'm trying to imagine Mexico's doing an issuance and th they say, look, we, we don't like the coupon on this that you're giving us. So are they bargaining for the whole market or or is it like a secondary market purchase that they're negotiating for a better deal because they're buying a, a, such a large chunk? Because I, I didn't quite understand why people were angry at them. If I mm -hmm. just if I go bargain for something and I get a better price because I'm a better purchaser, well, that that's, fair that's fair, good, right? right? Yeah. yeah, I mean that's what what you do, and so. But I, I'm guessing I'm missing a lot of the story and what mm. changed because they're supposed to be sleepy, buy and hold, and then 
they're no longer that. And yeah. if I could just add in another question, just so as to make sure Mark doesn't have any time for any sure, of his sure. questions. So, you know, the the story ends in tragedy and Bill Gross is kicked out and he's not able to reproduce his magic. And then he seems to go crazy with his neighbors and his wife and all, all that stuff. But is that is that in large part because he, he changes the market. So there now everybody behaves like the Bill Gross and he, what he's mm. doing is no longer different. And now everybody's like, there's a big market. Everybody knows how to play the market. Everybody's bargaining for basis points. And so he, his failure is actually his success. Oh, I love that. I always think of it as his success being his failure, but yes. Um, so to take those somewhat in order, um, I think one thing that the, the kind of context that I think would help the the kind of, you know, why is it necessarily, you know, what's the problem in negotiating better um, in that migration from a sleepy market to a more active and volatile and wild and extremely exciting market, um, I think there was this residual sense that we're all gentlemen here and a lot of handshakes, a lot of, you know, relationships, a lot of going to dinners, a lot, all of that stuff very much endured in the bond market and to some extent still does. And, you know, even until I think the pandemic really, you know, this was a, this was not an electronic market. This was, you know, they use electronics, obviously, but there's no like they really kept a good hold on it being a phone business and a, and, a, you know, call your buddy business, especially in high yield, especially new issue, all that. And I think what PIMCO did and was able to do and was always able to do weirdly was say, I don't care about those relationships, like eat it. I don't care. I don't need to care about your relationships. They were always big enough, even when they were little, because the bond market was correspondingly relatively little. They were able to say, you need me more than I need you. And you need me to anchor your new issue. So give me a better deal. You need me to, you know, buy that new issue later. So give me a better deal on this, you know, high yield secondary that I'm looking for. Please, like, <laughs> they would never say please, excuse me. Uh, like, I'm not going to pay this. I'm going to pay, you know, way lower than you're willing to part with it, et cetera. Like they are much more scorched earth in a market that has this kind of automatic behavioral assumption of kind of gentlemanly conduct. And there's an example in the nineties that, um, that, you know, in the high yield market that PIMCO would go around to all the different dealers and say, I want, you know, 2 million of this issue. And or, or sell 2 million of this issue, for example. And they would say that to five different banks and the banks would say, okay, here's the level. Thank you so much. And that would send all of the banks into the, you know, the interbank market bonking into each other because they all had bought 2 million of the same thing from PIMCO. That's not lying. Like PIMCO didn't lie to anybody. And that's, there's nothing illegal about this, but it's considered very poor form because, you know, if, the banks had known that it was truly 10 million worth or, you know, 20, but whatever the true amount was, they would have given a different level. There's It's supply and demand. They didn't know the true level. So that's annoying and offensive and deleterious to your, you know, longer term relationship if you have to care about that. But PIMCO never did. So there's this kind of fundamental rejection of that culture and of that, I don't know, respect that really rubs people the wrong way. And I don't know. I mean, I think you can show that it it works for PIMCO. I think it it was actually, you know, to their clients benefit. But 
it's it's not pleasant, you know, and that I think is is the thing that pissed people off and that you are picking up on that, you know, that context of like, we're all supposed to, you know, be telling the full size and, you know, not, you know, it's, it's, again, it's not dishonest, but there's some lack of transparency that PIMCO doesn't owe anybody, but that people feel owed nonetheless. So that was the first one. Um, The second one, I think, yeah. So Bill, I agree with you that yes, everybody behaves like Bill Gross now. Everybody negotiates for for basis points. I think he has inspired legions of people and his behaviors did set the tone in the market and help to kind of build its culture um, in this new way. So so yes, you know, the gentlemanly stuff um, aside, I think Bill has has kind of given a lot of of the tools that are used today in the bond market. And I think that's true, but I think it's also the thing that I think a lot about with these later year problems that he's encountered, his divorce, his fight with his neighbor, even his years at Janus, these were examples where he was unable to find the exit gracefully, right? And there's a world in which an elder statesman would just stop, would say, I'm out, I'm done, like, you know, two years into Janus, three years into, like, th- that they would just have said, enough. I have my money. I have my life. I'm going to go enjoy my beautiful home in a beautiful sunny California. Like, what am I doing being this miserable? But this is not Bill. I mean, he eventually got there, but then he had to, he always needs a benchmark, right? He needs something to compete against. He needs something to like, to, to moor himself. He, he always needs something to anchor himself. And that became, you know, really unproductive things in, in his retirement. And I am almost flattered that I became one of those, you know, like he published his own memoir two weeks before my book came out and was like tweeting about it and Instagramming about it, started an Instagram account for it. And like, thank you, sir. What an honor. Like that was that was kind of um, um, fun or nice or I don't know. I think people were like offended on my behalf, but I certainly wasn't that that was, um, you know, that that we had two books in the running and may the best man win. Like that was just kind of, that was nice. But um, the, the thing that the lesson that I've extracted from that is avoid revenge. Like you don't, it doesn't help you. His, his performance at Janice, I really think was colored by his, you know, unconstrained fund, not having a benchmark and the change in interest rate environment a little bit and many, many things. But to me, most fundamentally, it's that he, to some extent, allowed emotion to cloud his ability to perform, to to invest. And he took bigger swings. He uh, managed his own risk in a very different way. And I think you you see that he couldn't like the the toxicity of competing with PIMCO just corroded his ability to invest in a way. So it's super sad and uh, just like a real bummer of a last chapter. But I do think that, yes, you're right, but also this emotional component like he he gamed himself out of out of being able to compete by losing his uh his unemotional edge mary i said at the beginning uh, i think maybe this is exactly the right point to end I, I, I when i called it a sort of a shakespearean tragedy i i i think that does have some characteristics of that and and in the story is immensely entertaining, and yes, it's it winds up being kind of sad and depressing at the end. But you know, he's such a larger than life figure that mm-hmm. it's really, really compelling, uh, compelling to read. So, thank you so much for for coming on, and and thank you in particular for um, navigating and making sense of our totally rambling questions. And Not of, at of course, all; they're beautiful questions. I love them. 
by our, I, I would mostly mean me too. But in any event, <laughs> we, uh, we, um, we're so thrilled that you were able to come on. And thank you so much. We look forward to talking more soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you all so much. This has been really fun.